Hi everyone, this is Teresa Gonzalez with Latinas from the Block to the Boardroom. Thank you for liking and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast platform. As always, we're always looking for your feedback and comments on our website at latinasb2b.com. Get ready for the Juvenile Justice Reform Podcast with Rosie Arroyo. Welcome back, everyone. Just a quick recap from our last episode, uh, Serving the Tea on Tech. We had discussed some inequity in tech and how wage workers and contractors needed to be hired as full-time for their full-time work and not getting benefits, uh, and that means health and just insurance and and social security. The AB5 bill, which is a huge workers' rights bill that was started in the California Senate, was passed. So that is a huge, huge accomplishment for community coming together, rallying behind everyone and saying, we're not taking the exploitation anymore. And this was all started by this chingona who is Lorena Gonzalez, who is a Democrat from San Diego. So there was another woman named Maria Elena Dorazo. She is a Democrat from Los Angeles that worked with Lorena on this. So we're talking about two badass chingonas that had passed. They co-authored this bill, got people to rally around it, which puts all the big tech companies, Uber, Lyft, and Amazon. We're talking Apple, Google, and uh hello Facebook, that the contract working situation is going to change. So I want to just give a big two snaps for those women and leading the charge in putting the workers advocacy and rights forward. And it was passed yesterday by the governor, uh, Gavin Newsom, who used to be a mayor here in San Francisco in the Bay Area. And just to kind of quickly say that Uber and Lyft will start fighting this bill in an appeal and they're putting more than $60 million into this initiative to reverse this bill just so they don't have to pay for insurance and employment benefits for full-time workers. So it's still to keep them richer and the workers, you know, without any security or benefits. So let's just um, keep on working. And I'm very thankful for Lorena and uh, also the work that she's done with Maria in, in California. So big up. We still got more work to do, folks, in our communities. And I said work. Yes. But you guys are all on your phones. And you can use your voice. You can use your phones, tweets. Y'all with your tweets, man, you can take people down, as I've seen in the Twitter feeds. So let's just keep working with Latinx tech and the workers' rights coalitions to start talking about how we're going to hold tech companies accountable for equity in wages and security benefits. All right. So here is to my podcast and working in the community and having guest speakers. And so with that, I'm going to bring in a, another chingona. She's from the East Coast. And I met her through a wonderful woman uh, named Nora at the podcast movement. And we were talking about social rights and community equity for people of color. And she introduced me to Rosie Arroyo. And so I talked with Rosie a little bit about what she's doing in the juvenile justice transformation on a policy level that works with states in the law enforcement arenas that will help to hopefully transition less youth and youth of color being incarcerated in a lot of these in a lot of states. So, you know, one thing I want to say is, you know, what's the deal with law enforcement on school campuses, especially in communities of color? I mean, I just seriously want to know, you know, not for nothing, but it's white male teens that seem to be just popping off with her daddy's AKs and firearms at schools. And, you know, whenever I speak of, of these shootings with people and, and why are they not held to the standard of, we're talking youth in their high schools or in uh, junior high, they're being incarcerated for, I want you to elaborate on this, Rosie, but, you know, if a Mexican child or a black child were to come up into a school 
like Neo from the Matrix with, you know, just loaded down with guns, you know, folks would just, you know, because they're mad or upset or depressed or whatever it is. I mean, there would just be a serious revolt. But nobody's revolting in the way that we can. We're trying to do gun reform and get the law enforcement, uh, you know, presence out of the schools. But what else is it going to take? And that's why I have Rosie here on this podcast with me today. So, Rosie, uh, you want to tell us a little bit about your, you know, your start in the community, um, how you started working with law enforcement, and and we'll just take it from there. Yes, of course. So six years ago, I started working inadvertently in the field of youth justice reform and overall just uh, creating more opportunities for families in the community to succeed. So just advocating for families, but then focusing on um, justice reform efforts. And in the beginning, I really didn't understand the extent of the work that needed to be done. So it took me about three years to really get and understand my community, what they needed, what they were looking for, but then also getting to know the stakeholders and kind of, and by stakeholders, I mean law enforcement, prosecutors, public defenders, teachers, superintendents, judges, and and the like you know anybody a family a mom a dad a grandmother raising their children uh, their grandchildren mm. it really it just it took a lot of time to really understand at all levels what everybody was seeing from their viewpoint right, right. Um, and this work led to other things because ultimately we all want to live in communities that are safe and healthy and help us thrive and become successful so that we can all raise our own families, right? Right. Um, but how often is that opportunity allowed to some of us that might not have the background or socioeconomic status that some others have, right? Like if you, right. if you just don't happen to have that resilient gene that can bypass all the trauma without right. having to really deep, dig deep into and heal from it. Right. Um, then, then we're kind of stuck in this in this place where we might end up in kind of a circle or a generational place that we have that continues to perpetrate this whole justice involved system involvement, you know, lifestyle. Right. And not that that's something that you purposely seek to get, but when you're surrounded by these all these risks in the community and all and gun violence and poverty and substance use or even in more affluent communities with substance abuse domestic domestic violence all these affect the way a youth and and, and their children you know children grow up so it's it's all related right like everybody's at the table for a reason everybody from the teacher in your classroom to the person down the street that owns the pizza store you know what i mean like Absolutely. your neighborhood mm -hmm. is who is going to be raising you ultimately so after learning all of that like then you then i realized like well what's pointing us in this direction of what we need to do so of course the role that i have a lot of it's based on you know reviewing and analyzing data and making sure we can assess needs based on you know the numbers that we're seeing the data like the amount of youth arrest the amount of domestic violence incidents the amount of kids receiving free lunch in school uh the amount of families on you know but benefits and things like that so you you take all this information and you kind of pinpoint okay so these specific communities have these highest numbers in these areas so what does that mean that means they have so much more to fight against all these brick walls in front of them right. um, to be successful and you know and ultimately with all these things in the way and as you're growing up in adolescent brain development you might get bogged down by all that stuff and just being a child and teenager and growing up and being a teenager you know what i mean you make funny and silly decisions all the time and that's all just uh, what it is to be a teenager like if we all look back we could see oh i didn't always make the right choices but then we weren't all put in jail or in, in detention or anything because of that of those choices so like everything's related i just think people might kind of push away from that because it's like oh that's just you know my you know that doesn't happen here or this doesn't happen here and it's just really recognizing what's happening in our communities and being aware enough to want to do something about it 
Right. So I, I think in, well, just referencing back to the last podcast that we talked about, and we do talk about the systemic, you know, uh, poverty and economic inequality that happens in communities of color that are systemic that actually lead to this type of these these types of scenarios right kids want to join gangs you know they start to you know not want to go to school or they just go to school but they're not engaged and you know this is all from economics and opportunities in the job sector that really affect families right of of color and when we're you know when when the living wage you know or where it costs to live keeps going up but the wages keep going down it puts a lot of stress it's stress on the family it's stress on the kids so i think in in the lower income communities and this is statewide there is a, a higher level of you know kids that are just being I want to say they fall through the cracks, right? My my husband is in education. He's been over here in West Contra Costa. I'm on a board called the Calculus Roundtable where we do uh, STEM initiatives and we try to find money so that we keep kids engaged or we try to find new teaching methods that will enable kids to stay and be in school. Because I think as you and I discussed previously, this is a space for some of these kids where they just get their first meal of the day or this is their safe place because, you know, the shit at home is really intense or, you know, grandma is not there or, you know, a lot of their extended families, which we've talked about as well, are, you know, displaced and or there's other family members and it's really hard. And you talk about the trauma that's embedded and how do we get over it? So, yes, there's these brick walls. There's the, you know, the brick walls, there's the moats, there's, you know, everything we have to do. So when you succeed, it is truly an accomplishment. And, you know, it was a focus that somebody gave you an opportunity. So I just want to emphasize you know, how important for me, I'm always shocked by the law enforcement presence that are in these schools, because I think it really perpetrates that cradle, you know, cradle to pipeline metaphor, right? Because we're already creating that you're being profiled and you're already being, you know, you go to juvenile hall. And then from there, most of them, when they come out, they end up doing something else and then they go to prison. So it's almost like they don't have a running start to, to get out there and try because they're so lacking in all the other, you know, extended sphere of influence to, for them to grasp onto. So, Talking about that and what you're doing in policy advocacy with law enforcement, I mean, how do you navigate that? How do you get their ear and how do you make, you know, that institution say, hey, back the you know what up, back the truck up. You know what I mean? It's like you don't need that type of uh, presence. You know, what? what is it that you do? Because I think. This is this is a discussion where we can say, how do we bring other people together to say, this is the template for justice reform for communities of color in the juvenile, you know, K through eight or high school level so that there is a fighting chance for them to excel and to exceed and to be engaged. So I think um, a lot of when I started, so I can say about three years ago when I officially really focused on law enforcement. So the juvenile justice system has various components and depending on the state you're in, it varies. Like different different states have their justice system, their youth justice system under different branches and government entities and things like that. And New Jersey's set up in a way where we have a juvenile, we actually have a juvenile justice commission that houses youth that get adjudicated delinquent and sentenced to our training school, which is Jamesburg or other, or the girls Hayes side. So that's the very tail end, right? Like what I try to do is focus on doing as many blocks to get to that area, right? And all of this involves partnerships. 
but you mean was, you mean you do a little ninja work to like not yeah. get them there <laughs> you're like hey yeah, you got like, to do <laughs> you get out your martial arts like uh law uh like hey look this way <laughs> no there yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you know what funny you say that so just keep that on the side martial arts okay yes yeah. we'll, we'll bring we'll go back to that because it's all involved so the new jersey is set up that legislatively there's these things called youth services commission and each county houses a youth services commission and these commissions are responsible for developing programs that provide um, preventative and supportive services to youth that are either at risk or system involved right so already on we're kind of ahead of the game where we already have these dollars focused on this area right so so what do you do you have this money that's focused in these areas and now you have individuals responsible for making sure that there's these things that happen so when i took on the role again i said i really didn't understand the full extent of what this was going to be so 3 years ago when i started really working at a deeper level when i finally analyzed our county on a large level i focused on seven different communities in the county and these communities just had higher risk factors and on and to be honest with you it had we had urban cities in that and then suburban communities in that in the seven mm-hmm. right but based on different risk factors that were identified and the and the demographics and the amount of youth overall population things like that and they vary from small to large. So these seven communities, I was like, well, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to start talking to different community partners there. So I had I you know, I took time um to what, speak I'm to sorry. Them. What just I didn't mean to interrupt, but what are what do you consider community partners in that aspect? Oh, just like people who, you know, churches, if there's different civic organizations, nonprofit organizations, families, and then prosecutors and teachers you know just individuals that might be living or in the community that have are knowledgeable about engagement and what they've seen in the in the past and where they see things going so you know you have to take that all in right because you can't here i never had the opportunity to ever engage law enforcement besides the fact if i ever got pulled over you know and things like that like it was just you know you just don't think that that's and you could sit down and have a conversation with a police officer and it just be like about how's it going you know what i mean yeah um, no i mean when you're a, when you're a person of color and we're t- you know when you're a you know a person of significant color and we're talking yeah. you know not light skinned or white it is a scary moment right yeah yeah exactly and i have to acknowledge that as a white latina i have to know that there's a difference and when i'm approached by law enforcement or i'm approaching law enforcement it could be viewed differently right so mm-hmm. i'm not saying that everybody reacts that way it's just a possibility mm-hmm. um so gathering all this information having discussions i really didn't have a roadmap on how to engage law enforcement so my first tactic was send an email to the police chief in the community and the school in that community and their township council and ask them to meet with me regarding their their community and so several of them um took me up on the offer and the first one you know we make a joke of it now but 3 years ago you know i sit at the table real serious right because well I also joke about law enforcement like they never like when I first was introducing myself to them they don't smile they're just like very like stern looking intimidation he, you know yeah, with, with he, the presence mm-hmm. yeah and they're that's they're trained that way and that's mm-hmm. I understand that but here I am like smiling and and joking and and like I'm getting nowhere man there's like crickets so again 3 years ago I show up with folders of data talk about everything talk about the possibilities now that you know all this that I'm sharing with you here's where we could go with this like this is exactly telling us you know what where to focus on you know maybe your community needs more early childhood preventative services so do we do more after school programs and incorporate like ballet karate classes you know boxing things like that or do we need more tutoring you know and so how do we build that in your community with a partnership with everybody at the table and now 3 years later they they're like are you still watching us how are we doing you know what i mean and so it's like it's gotten to a point where it's like they come we kind of 
brainstorm on how to be more effective in the community um, as law enforcement to really they've engaged and they've enhanced the way they work with youth by being more trauma informed they they slow down i guess their process in in assessing and take the time to help divert kids from the juvenile justice system hmm. so i don't have the exact number off the top of my head but i know we've reduced the amount of arrests from 2017 to 2018 by almost 27% Mm. which which is a huge deal right so like we are law our police departments are utilizing diversionary tactics hmm. uh, so like overall we have we've reduced this but we've also we also still have over representation of minority youth in the system exactly which is why i bring up the whole fact of white male teens and just white males in general going ballistic no pun intended there about a gun bullet but <laughs> yeah, they, you know what? They, they there is a high percentage of them and the justice system when we talk about them from high school level that show this type of aggression in school and that is not dealt with but yet this is my i guess my rub to the whole thing and i appreciate all the things you're doing because i want this to change because it really stunts the community growth and the the prosperity of communities really coming together is you know th- that there is this uh, injustice of profiling and it creates a lot of anger and it, it, you know how can we you know not be angry when this is happening and since the elections of Trump it has been a higher percentage and there is no decrease of police profiling of people of color in fact it's gotten a lot worse and i just think the kids when they see this right and we talked about this is that they see it on social media they see it on tv they hear it from their friends and it's also in their schools so they're starting to say hey they know and they see these other kids that are rising up and saying we're not going to take this shit anymore and i love how this generation is really going to change things but they need the tools and the skills and they need to understand how to organize which is why i have you on this podcast so we understand how to organize how to align ourselves and to have the information and the necessary you know tools to come to the table and be you know that i want to say uh ninja my ninja to say hey you can't say this cuz i have data to back it up this is what's been happening and to really go you know i want to say mano a mano with the data right because they are not standing down and nobody should be standing down about this so i really want to you know this isn't to say oh we're hopeless we can't do this it is about how you come together how you organize how we can you know create unity and how you bring the community together to really stand up and have the conversation at the table that you're talking about right because it's very important and this generation of gen x and the millennials that are coming in you know they're really changing the narrative but i think that they don't have the history and the experience that you know a lot of us have had or that we've seen from our parents you know in the 60s and the 70s you know all during all that turmoil you know what it meant to organize and bring communities together we need that foundation again so i i didn't mean to interrupt you no, but but i think you you bring it when after parkland i think everybody's reaction was like immediate like this reactionary thing um which you know we have a history of either after devastating effects and things that events in our in our country we either really band together the example beautiful example of 911 how we band together after that to really support each other we were like you know you know what i mean how yes how communities literally loved each other and and supported each other um after parkland i think families and communities really wanted to re- like feel safe again and have mm-hmm. their children feel safe and and like what do you do um what's your pr- first thing when you think of safety public safety right law enforcement so law enforcement was going to at least put a bandaid on you know how i viewed it 
personally, you were, they were going to put a bandaid on this this larger issue on how to deal with school climate and issues that evolve into these school events. But in reality, if you're not like I have experienced really awesome school resource officers, right? I have we developed a program in one of our communities and it's after school gaming program, right? Mm. So a, a good example is um, one of the kids um, in the school was, you know, kind of a loner, didn't really talk to anybody. And then always up and down the halls, like, you know, he just really didn't have that many friends. We start this program, you know, I, fun- I funded the police department $2,500. Um, mm-hmm. And with the $2,500, they did this whole gaming thing, right? Like, of so like they also you know put funds into it too because twenty five hundred dollars wasn't going to get you much mm-hmm. um, but they put like four gaming stations you know all types of like just board games Uno apparently these kids are obsessed with Uno and what the school resource officer just makes it a point to hang out with them after school with this program well let me tell you that kid went to that program the first day it opened took his headphones off and talk to four other kids. And I know that doesn't seem like a lot, but let me tell you, like in, in that kid's life, that's huge. That kid then later brought, helped bring out another kid that was experiencing some really traumatic stuff in his life out of his shell and sat there and, and befriended him. Mm-hmm. And then and then like you, you have a room full, in any given day there's anywhere between 15 and 40 kids depending after school. And we just started this in like, maybe January of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll have everywhere from anyone from football players to like, you know, more reserved artists or things like that. Like right. quiet, you know, not more introverted and like they're engaging and they're, you know, joking around with the SRO, the um, school resource officer. And then the guidance counselor comes in and checks in, right? Hey guys, how are you doing? What's going on? Does anybody need help with homework? You know, are you guys good? Does anybody want a snack? And then kids go home like at after school, like around maybe 4.30 or the late bus. Now, I know that doesn't seem like a lot, right? But that's just like a a good example of what a good SRO could do, right? Just instead of looking at things in a negative standpoint, they're they're always looking for the best in in somebody. And they're there more of support. some SROs um, don't do that, right? And it, I guess it depends on their training and their mindset and things like that. I've just, I've just honestly been in a community that our school resource officers are extremely compassionate, and we have really progressive chiefs of police where that nonsense isn't tolerated. Right. And that's not, that's not everywhere, and that's not everybody. Exactly. If, if but bringing that conversation to even get to that to even be able to start a a program after school that wasn't easy like it's not easy to engage and tell a police officer who's been trained for public safety to be like we need you to be able to provide youth opportunities to grow and be successful and not push for charging immediately not look at issues in school as school issues and help mediate versus arresting and charging and then putting them in the system right and i think that shift has happened at least locally here in our county and um and on a statewide level we have really some really progressive police departments that are going that route i i mean and that's just one example but i think people thought it was going to be the safest easiest thing to do when in reality what we should have been doing is focusing on mental health support in these exactly um like really like what was the crisis intervention for that for for those kids right where was it it was missing right like and and if you don't know the resources if those all those signs were there then we also have to take we have to own that right we missed something and and not own it to feel guilty but own it to heal and move forward and fix it exactly yep and we can't and we're stuck it's like we're and you know, yes, we need gun reform, and yes, we need changes at policy levels and the way school security is handled. But when you when you're asking a teacher to do eight million things, and be a, a, a social worker, and feed the school, the kid in the, in class, maybe because he forgot his lunch money, 
and help them with their homework. I mean, when are they going to just be a teacher? Exactly. Right? Oh, no, but, you don't have to explain it to me. My husband is, you, you know, he's moved out of the classroom and, and he has moved into the administrative realm because I mentioned to him, that's where you can have the most influence because there is a lot of, I want to call the old guard that can get, they're going to retire and the new ideas and systems and that all the young people that come through in the education system are really going to make an impact. And the system has to change too. But I want to go back to the juvenile justice system because, and how we talk about, you know, the law enforcement presence there. And when we talk about that and, and you're talking about how the police system are being or the police or the law enforcement are really there to, and I might be mistaken saying this, to advocate for communities and to really assure that they're safe um, in your region. But there is a lot of distrust still, and it has been for years, and that's going to take a lot of unpacking with communities of color. Yeah. It, it's going to take years. But I think as our community heals and law enforcement I think they have to unpack their shit and they don't want to do that because of the, I, I feel like it's a power structure that is ingrained and goes into it. And I know there, there's a lot of good, you know, folks out there, but it only takes those bad ones to really, you know, put that really get blown up and just, you know, in the media to say, you know, here's what happens. Yeah. And I think that when the community comes together to heal and the police are educating themselves to unpack their biases and their institutional colonizations of people of color and how they view people of color and, you know, everybody's working on their stuff, I think that's when the change is really going to happen. But we are we are not going to get there I just feel like the police presence in the school needs to come out. That's my personal opinion. And I know that I don't even know why it's there, to be quite honest. I really don't know why it's even there. I mean, is it to protect the teachers? Is it to, I mean, I, I still want to understand why that presence is, is there. And, you know, it's going to take a long time. I, you know, like the prison system itself, it's a business. It is a business. And, you know, business does not continue to grow unless you have customers. So if there's more customers and the customers keep buying or there's more customers being pushed through the system, that business is never going to die. And I feel like, you know, the business development, you know, I'm taking it to a business level here. The <laughs> business development reps are the police enforcement, you know, in school. Like, hey, you know, how do we turn this around? It's like, get them out. You know, it's like, uh, you know, I know there's there's good cops out there. I'm just saying that the police force in these communities of color, when they're already downtrodden, there's a lot of economic, you know, burden and inequity. The families are disrupted. You know, there's there's so much going on. If you could just take that one element out, I mean, I almost feel like it's like we cannot take care of ourselves. You know, it's yeah, like I think like we um, at some point as community, we have to own some of it, too, in the sense that. If we want change, we have to make sure we, we like embody that change that we want to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. So like I knew there was something that was missing at, at multiple levels in communities I didn't live in, but knew, but were in my local area. So I made it a point to get to know exactly what that community is, was, who they are, and then get to know like, and like, again, the police department. And then honestly, and honestly, like it, it, you need, you need a consistent person in your community. That's going to sit there and have these conversations right? Um, and know how to deescalate heated conversations. So it's healing. So in, in essence, we, I was probably doing restorative discussions when I was introducing myself to these community, to these police departments, because I was here, I was in a community, like an advocate in the community. Mm -hmm. having these conversations that were super official and you know here are some next steps um, i think what i learned is having consistency being able to bring community and law enforcement together in safe spaces to to have these conversations right 
and then and then report back to each one on changes we each want to make right like changes we want to see and changes we want to make right um and then and then just and be honest with what's a possibility right right so being, with, with being honest comes here's what the legislation or policy tells us we're allowed to do right or we can do or what we have what we're like kind of stuck in between right um here's what we were able to do within that but then knowing that this is what we can do within something here are these areas that we can change something and push for new legislation or amendments to different bills right you know what i mean so it's like but you don't get there unless someone's willing to dive deep into having these conversations right as uncomfortable as they are honestly i think i think this new these youth coming up are going are going to change the game like uh, you know at this point i'm 36 years old and i'm you know i'm hoping that i get to be around someone up and coming so then i could educate them and be and give them all of the knowledge that i have so that they can keep it moving forward because at some point like my viewpoint is going to be skewed because as I get older, I'm going to react differently to things. Right. right? And I don't want that to affect the beauty that comes with change. Um, yeah, change is hard. I, I, I get that. And I, that's why, the, you know, these podcasts that I have created are regarding intergenerational conversations because we have to connect and link hands on history of sharing knowledge and how we can change our community and what we can unpack knowing what we know by experience being in the situation that we have been in and how we want to create reform and change so just real quick rosie um i love this discussion what is the difference can you explain to some of our listeners out there what do you think is I have two questions, but the first part is, what is the difference between restorative justice and juvenile justice reform in communities of color? Mm -hmm. So if you're just focusing on juvenile justice reform, it could be basic policies that don't incorporate community involvement or community aspects, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're just reforming the system, that could just be like you're changing a policy to update it because it's outdated on something. You know, there's a shift in this. It could be something completely unrelated to community. When you speak on restorative justice practices, you speak on healing the community, bringing people together in like these types of healing circles that allow for law enforcement to trust the community to heal itself and, and mediate the situation right and it could even include law enforcement at the table hey if you're on probation it can include probation at the table hmm. the all the all the parties involved in the situation and you literally create a healing circle right and then you and you have a mediator or a counselor or whoever takes the lead to to hash out the situation mm -hmm. and you heal like and so then you're restoring a peace in a community you get to you reconcile with everything and then you are able to move forward. Right. And so mm -hmm. you have people that, you know, there's beautiful models across the U S on this, um, on restorative justice and healing circles and, and these centers where like, we just heal the community instead. Restorative justice is based on trauma informed practices. It they're welcoming locations or community members. And, and it's all about, like reconciling with the situation and healing your community versus just maybe just policy change, right? Because right. restorative justice in and in of itself is not just policy change, but it's a, a mindset change. Right. You're, uh, my someone I know always says you're changing hearts and minds, right? Like so, you're literally changing the way a person views the community once you heal together. Yeah, and that's deep. So, uh, you know, and that's why I want to take it back to the conversation or the the point that I made that, you know, in that restorative healing and when you have a healing circle, the presence of who is your perpetrator or who you do not feel safe with or that there is an antitrust, I feel that that breaks the circle of healing and you you cannot have that in but there are also people that probably bring that in, but everybody I think, you know, there has to be respect and peace on that healing aspect. And I, I just feel the police or the law enforcement 
if they want to have their healing circle, they need to, like I said, they need to unpack their own stuff in their own way. And I know you're saying bring them into the circle to engage in the conversation of how do we reform communities and bring it full circle so that we can move together. You know, I don't know if that will ever, you know, happen unless, unless we're like, you know, some of the European countries where they don't carry guns and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, they're just about, you know, everybody understands the social, you know, equity and the care of the nation as a whole uh, together. I mean, some nations in Europe, I've been to Europe a few times, they are not like that. But there are other, you know, world entities that, you know, there is a lot of, uh, you know, healing and restorative justice. And, you know, this country really has been built on oppression and, how you know there there is a lot of work to be done and we are the youngest nation you know with the biggest cajones out there and yeah. you know that's really awesome but at the same time it is built on the backs of people of color and i feel like the incarceration and you're bringing in the law enforcement at a young level without unpacking or why there is a reason and you have white males that are going out there and there is not the same justice being uh stored restored in the communities of an equal librium it's really hard for everyone to come together at the table. And I want to commend you for bringing that, I want to say olive branch, into your area and how you have been able to do that and restore that piece of your community because, uh, you know, other big states have a long way to go. California is one of them. And I just really feel that, you know, hearing your voice and what you can do and how we want to get a seat at the table and how we can amend the communities in healing together in a restorative justice, but also doing it at a policy level is really going to bring some dynamic change on an economic level. And for me, I'm always wanting to build communities up on an economic level because I came from, you know, I, I've said in the previous early on recordings, you know, I came from, there's a community in Fresno called the West Side. And, you know, it's like back in the, back in the day, it was, a, you know, these were where Mexican-Americans and African-Americans lived, but it was after the GI Bill and, you know, everybody had a home and everybody had a car and everybody could go to school. And it was kind of like that, you know, after the World War II, but then it, it just sank. And LA is the same way. And, you know, out here in Richmond, you know, after Rosie the Riveter, there's a whole story and there's a national park over here that has the same information on the communities have all given their part in this American system in the justice system. We have all wanted to be a part of this. We are a part of this country. But when we see the presence of how we're being militarized in schools, in the justice system, and how we want to reform that, it takes a lot of knowledge to bring, as you do, data, the conversation. You don't stand down. You bring your presence and you really go toe-to-toe. And you also keep those kids out of there by saying, hey, here's how we can work together and this is not right for them to go. So I want to really just applaud you and Nura for bringing us together on that. And I wanted to also ask you, I have one last question for you. (laughs) I, um, I think this overall, um, I don't know if this is where I initially intended to take my life in, in the direction of working in this field but I know it's become more than a job and I think it's just part of me now. Mm -hmm. And last year, just being in the amazing presence of Dolores Huerta. Oh, I love her. Yes. I almost like passed out, but I was in a really tough place because I, I felt like, man, it's been how many years and I'm having, and I keep having the same conversation and, and why aren't they using this diversionary resource or yes. why happening you know what I mean like yes and I get bogged down and then I remember I have to be patient and like and I'm sitting in there and like she's literally right in front of me and she's speaking on you know 
how you can't give up, how you find every way. Yes. If one way doesn't work, this way will work. Yes. If that way doesn't work, you go the other way. Mm -hmm. And what I realized is in my metaphor, like in how I see it, it's like, you know, my family comes from housing development. My dad's in construction, my entire family. And, you know, like if I find like if there's a hole in the if if the door clamp closes in front of my face i'm gonna bang on the door if no one opens then i'm gonna take a hammer to that door and if, if not then i'm gonna find a window and if that window shut i'm gonna crack that window open and, and find a way in to be in this conversation right right so like, and she did that and and how perfect timing was it that i'm in this rut and she's like in front of me like all of her glorious so many years of age and right. still fighting the fight like in here and and i was tired at 35 exhausted right and she's today she is 89 years old touring yeah, speaking and saying si se puede, don't give up you yeah. know come on you can do it i mean if that's any goal <laughs> For anybody yeah, and, and, she, and she hit me hard because part of the conversation was talking about school reform and mm-hmm. justice mm-hmm. and um school prison pipeline and and then i was like it was meant for me to see her tonight it was meant for me to be here because like i'm recharged yes right? so, like, i just it might not seem i like to be in the behind the scenes right i will yeah. uplift everybody and anybody that is out there doing amazing stuff um and i love to be able to empower them to do even more amazing things awesome yeah no i mean she is the most amazing woman and if nobody has seen her movie uh dolores and you're like, I keep hearing about this woman and I know about her and she's, you know, an activist. You need to see that movie. Everybody needs to see that movie because she changed the way food comes to your table. Okay. How all the vegetables and all the fruit that comes to your table from California, which is the fifth largest global industry in agricultural yeah, I always, I always explain, like, I even, I, I'm always prepared for this argument, right? Like, you know, when people bring up immigration reform and undocumented individuals, it like, oh, it like burns me up, right? Because here I am, my parents, I'm first generation, right? My parents mm-hmm. came over from Mexico, beautiful, amazing, hardworking people that helped me be who I am, right? My dad built the homes that you live in. Right. My dad built the shopping malls that you shop in, the restaurants you eat in, the businesses that you work in. My grandmother put food on your table with the vegetables that she picked in the fields. Like my family helped you have yours. Yes. And so I like, again, um, being able to have all of this and and all everything that we do we have to continue to seek justice no matter what it is whether it's justice reform social justice education reform migrant worker rights and and you know women's rights and and everything we have to make sure that we seek true justice and seeking true justice we have to reconcile with all the negative that's happened and try to survive from the traumas and move forward to change and not be remember our history and and how it hurt but allow that hurt to push you to change something yeah like and i think that is my constant reminder when i'm in these communities and i'm hearing our our parents and our grandparents tell me about their children in the in the juvenile justice system or when i get to work with the adults coming back from incarceration saying you know i've been locked up for 33 years nothing in this community is re-entering because it all is new to me right new like i and new entry and like and i so we started a group called new entry opportunity specialists that help previously incarcerated adults just network and be and and change policy and change stigma in our community like all you have to do is sit down and have a conversation with somebody and you know and and i understand the fact that i look white is a big deal and it makes it easier because the conversation is going to be easier. But if it, for me, right? So I, it's going to take a lot more work for somebody else that doesn't look like me. Mm-hmm. And I have to respect that. But I also will be there right next to them, right behind them, if they want to have that conversation. 
Heck, I if someone wants to call me from Texas and and tell me like they're about to have this conversation, can I be on mute in your phone in, in my pocket um, or in their pocket while they talk to them? I will do that for them, right? Just because I want them to have somebody to lean on because these topics aren't easy to talk about. Nope, nope, they sure aren't. So out here in California, there is an an organization called Homeboy Industries. Yes, you know yes. about them. Oh my god! That, <laughs> can I can I just go and be there with them forever? Yes, they are absolutely amazing. They are. They are. They're based out of Los Angeles, California. If you if nobody knows about them, HomeboyIndustries.org. They are amazing and it really works we're talking about you know the incarcerated or gang members that want to be you know part of community and and building an enterprise and how they've been able to heal and and do all these wonderful things they just are healing the community but they're also building businesses which is awesome so if you know about them i mean this could be a whole other you know podcast in itself so I have a question. I mean, is that does that is that true, or am I stating non facts here for you, Rosie? No, I I feel like in order for us to make something happen, we have to be loud and be yes, present, you know, be loud. Yep, and I love that you know them, so that's great. But that means that our communities are coming closer and closer together. Yes. So. On this note, and I, I mean, you've given me a lot of information and I really appreciate it. And I love hearing these stories about women that are changing. The, I know there's some, you know, hombres out there that are also doing that. And we will also have them on this show talking about what they're doing in their communities. But that's another podcast as well. <laughs> yeah. And I want everybody to be that, right? And be okay with who they are and how they, if they advocate silently through social media and not in person then guess what you are our town twitter town hall lead you know what i mean mm-hmm. like like i just feel as long as you're consistent and genuine and true to you and who you want to be and who mm-hmm. you want to affect and impact why am i here why why do i want to do this give me that reason yeah and then i can figure out what my what is Yep. So Rosie, I just want to thank you for today and giving me your time. I want to thank Nura for bringing us together and sharing this information. And I'm giving you a big hug from uh, across the the states here to the East Coast. (laughs) Thanks, Vanessa. I so appreciate you and your team. And Nura is beautiful. Yes, she, she is. Maybe we'll be a guest on her podcast one day.